0: you find your seats, if you'd find Genesis chapter 49, we'll finish that tonight, she will leave us with just chapter 50 to go. Next Sunday night, uh, Connie and I will be with the high school up in Mammoth, kicking off that camp, so we'll uh, have uh, Pastor Rob, I believe, is going to be sharing a word with you next Sunday night, but excited about where we're going next. We'll be going to the book of Daniel, so it's going to be an exciting time, love that book. So much practical application, a bunch of prophecy in it, so uh, get ready. Tonight, uh, part two of really the story of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. What's Up Israel, part two. And if you remember last time, we kind of looked really just chiefly at this, this messianic prophecy of the Shiloh who is to come. And tonight, as we draw through this passage, we really find that Uh, Here in the lives of the children of Israel, specifically the 12 tribes, uh, we're going to see the name Yeshua, or our God who is salvation. Uh, We're going to find the mighty one, the shepherd, the stone, the almighty. You you know all of these names because you know what the New Testament says about the coming Messiah. Um, But before we do that, we'll dig in and we'll begin uh, with the rest of Leah's kids and then uh, follow on through and... Make our way through all of the 12 tribes and then we'll pick up the lineage of Jesus at the end. And so let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, your powerful word, your mighty word, your word which is true, which brings life, speaks into our lives even in this day and time from what could be an obscure passage of scripture about some men that lived a long time ago but through them would be the coming king the mighty one, the shepherd, the rock, the stone, the one that was rejected by the builders, but the one that is the chief cornerstone. And so, Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you'd speak to us through it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. And so as we begin, rather than with these names, which we'll get towards the end of the chapter, we begin with the remainder of Leah's kids. Now, remember that the story of, of Jacob's life is one that he has this bride that he really wants to marry, and that's Rachel. Uh, he ends up going to work for this man named Laban, a good old Uncle Laban, who kind of puts him to the test. He ends up getting Leah first and then Rachel, so he's actually got two wives. He also has two concubines or two handmaidens, two ladies that are also through whom he's going to bear children, and again, I remind you, there is no biblical reference here for multiple marriages or multiple wives or anything else it is simply what the lord allowed during that period of time and so we draw nothing from it but the fact of the matter is jacob has in essence four different women with whom he has children and all of them are going to be involved here in the the end of this uh, narrative about the children of israel and so Uh, We begin first with the rest of Leah's kids um, with Zebulun. And so it says of him that his eyes are darker than wine, his teeth are whiter than milk, and Zebulun shall dwell by the haven of the sea and shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. So again, remind yourself that this is primarily historical. It's painting a picture of some general characteristics of the children of Israel, and so the tribe of Zebulun, if you were to go to the, the promised land today, to the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of Zebulun is actually on the very northern boundary of the land of modern Israel. It's just below Haifa, uh, would be actually in the land of Zebulun. So if you look at it, the actual port city. Now the Jewish people were not known as a seafaring people, but there were a people just north of them that were, and they were known as the Phoenicians and the Phoenicians were one of the great seafaring people of the Mediterranean, and so it would be there that, that the children of Israel would trade with those who were in the port city of Sidon, which is just slightly north of modern-day Haifa. So you have Tyre, Sidon in modern-day Lebanon, and then in modern-day Israel, the port city of Haifa. And it was the children of Zebulun that settled there, and, and they controlled a very interesting place in the geography of Israel at the time and still today, modern day Israel. If you travel with us, you go on one of our tours to Israel, we'll sit up on top of the Mount, Mount Carmel and we'll look down on the Jezreel Valley, also the valley known as the Valley of Megiddo or where Armageddon, part of the battle will happen. And though the final portion of that will be the Valley of Jehoshaphat near Jerusalem, but you have this very long valley uh, that encompasses much of the north of Israel, and in fact, it does extend from the seacoast and the actual city that was inhabited by the by the children of Israel, known through the lineage of Zebulun. And so, it was there um, that they settled. And in fact, the book of Joshua reminds us of that in Joshua chapter 19. And even Moses, as he authored the book of Deuteronomy, said that they uh, would partake of the abundance of the seas. And so uh, it was this particular tribe that traded with those that were to the north of them that became kind of the port city, which would eventually become the port city uh, of modern-day Israel or in Haifa. And so uh, as you look at the book of Judges, you're going to find that both Deborah and Barak uh, praised the men of Zebulun because they uh, rallied via ship to come to their aid. And so first you have this, this son known as Zebulun. The next son that we have here in verses 14 and 15 is Ishikar. And it says of him, verse 14, Ishikar is a strong donkey. I don't know if I'd really want to be known as a strong donkey, but nonetheless that is his uh, calling card lying down between two burdens. And he saw that rest was good and the land was pleasant and he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. And so Ishakar is situated between the eastern end of the Jezreel Valley and the coastal city that was inhabited by the descendants of Zebulun. And it was there that many of the judges would also uh, preside over the things that transpired in the northern kingdom. Now remember when you're talking about Israel, which is we study the history of Israel, Israel would eventually be divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which is 10 tribes, the southern kingdom, which would be the kingdom of Judah and, and would be known as Israel. And so you have the northern the northern 10 tribes and the southern two tribes. And so this is one of the northern tribes, the tribe of Issachar. And as they were uh, inhabiting the, the land that is the Jezreel Valley, um, they would be... Well known for for what they would do in trading, and so you can imagine uh, that the coast, which is where many of the goods would come from foreign lands, um, through the tribe of Zebulon, then they would be passed off to the tribe of Issachar. Issachar would move those goods into the inland portion of what we would call modern day Israel and from there it would be distributed along the north-south route which traveled along the Jordan River Valley and very specifically would be transferred into the region known the Galilee of the Gentiles uh, which is where Jesus would base uh, most of his ministry while he was here on this earth and so Ishakar became the defenders and, and the traders and they were kind of a beast of burden in that sense and so what Jacob says about them here actually does play out to be true. Um, the only difference is, is during that time, even kings rode on donkeys. So it was a rather a noble profession to be someone who would carry more than their share of a burden. And in fact, this, this tribe, though it produced no great kings, it didn't produce uh, any notable people that we find in Scripture. There's, there's no one that says, well, it was the tribe of Ishakar and they brought forth this person. Um, but it does basically say that these two sons of Leah were kind of the everyday working folk uh, of the northern part of the region uh, that would be known as the northern tribe or the, the northern uh, group of, of nations or, or city nations uh, under the the children of Jacob. And so as they settle in, you can kind of see them starting to inhabit the land. And of course, when we read the book of Judges after the conquest and the portioning of the land to the 12 tribes, uh, these, these things become very, very, very clear. Uh, next, we have the sons of Billah, And we'll pick up in uh, verses 16 through 18 and also verse 21. And for some reason, and I cannot tell you why, I've read probably a dozen commentaries on this, and nobody knows why there happens to be one son that's listed out of order here, but nonetheless, uh, it, it is so. And so we'll, we'll actually take them as the sons of Billa, um Rachel's maid. And so remember, Rachel has a maid, Leah has a maid, and we're going to cover all four of them tonight as we finish up here in chapter 49. And Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. And Dan shall be a serpent, by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that its rider shall fall backwards. And it says of him, for I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. So here comes the first name that we find associated ultimately with Messiah. This name salvation, which is Yeshua, which in Greek is Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. And so it's pointing forward uh, into, our, into our history that would, would take place um, almost 1,500 years later. And so the name Dan actually means to judge. And originally the Danites inhabited the land, the coastal cities, really to the south and to the west of Jerusalem. And so if you were to look at a map of Israel, they would be in what we would call today the Gaza Strip. And so in that region was also the land of the Philistines and the Danites were actually mighty warriors And in fact, they were also, the descendants of Dan were also primarily the judges of the children of Israel. And you know a couple of them, uh, very specifically one named Samson, amen? He was a Danite. And so from the tribe of Dan, they were given this kind of this fertile strip that lies along the Mediterranean coast, Um, but it was Philistine territory. And so they would have to fight for it. Eventually what would happen is the Danites became so mighty and so numerous uh, that they spread out, eventually they would actually have kind of like a satellite portion of their kingdom and they would move their headquarters to the city of Dan which is actually in northern Israel. And so again, if you travel there today, the ruins of, the, of Tel Dan uh, is the largest Canaanite ruin in all of the Middle East and so it is there. Uh, that King Jehoshaphat set up his altar uh, and they began to kind of go south. And so while they were the judges, they also had a few kings that they produced uh, that were less than desirable. And so King Jeroboam would be one of those kings who would set up his, his altar. And if you, again, go to the city of Dan, there's actually an altar of, of Jeroboam. It sits underneath an oak tree on the top of a hill. Uh, And it was there that the Danites, after fighting all these valiant wars with the Philistines, and they would go and sack Lachish, and they would take all of this ground for the children of Israel. Uh, Eventually, they would fall backwards, putting all of their faith into their ability to win at war. And so uh, finally, they became uh, a tribe that basically no one wanted to be anywhere near and so ezekiel actually uh, does describe a place uh, among among the in the kingdom age that there would would be a place for dan but basically they kind of fade out of existence Um, because they were so far in the north they would also be one of the first tribes that was taken by the assyrian army in about 800 bc when the assyrians came and took the northern tribes captive so they took israel captive and then only Judah would survive during that time. And so uh, Dan became kind of this, a, a little bit of a, a misnomer, if you will. It seemed like they were really strong, but actually they were very weak because they were internally, even though they were judging others externally, internally the Danites themselves didn't have a vibrant relationship with God. They kept returning uh, back to the idolatrous ways of those who are around them. And so Dan... Uh, Though they judged, others fell into sin themselves. Uh, The next, which actually skips down to verse 21, uh, is the tribe of Naphtali. Uh, And so Naphtali is a deer, uh, and that deer um, would be let loose. And he uses beautiful words. And so you kind of have this, a little bit of the uh, artful influence, if you will, in in the tribe of Naphtali. And if you, uh, again, travel to the land today, uh, the tribe of Naphtali is kind of in the little bit of the foothills, um, in, in the northern reaches of the land that we call Israel. Uh, it's very hilly, and there's an, a number of areas that are kind of like between different valleys, and they occupied that land, and it was there that basically the artists and the poets, that was those who uh, cared more about the beautifully crafted words than they did about much of anything else. And so, Moses would say about them that they would be satisfied with flavor. They would be full of blessing. Uh, he actually will equate them to a female deer, doe, a deer, a female deer. And I think that that's where Sound of Music got that song. I don't know. But <laughs> it, 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 was, it was they who actually were um, more on the artistic side. And so they were craftspeople. Um, we, we, again, as we read their history, um, we 'll find out that these things stay consistent all the way through what we know about them, especially in scripture and actually in history outside of scripture itself. Um, but they did become rather deceptive. They also fell in uh, with some of the those who practiced the the dark arts of magic. Uh, it would be in that region that we have uh, a couple of people that were fairly uh, fairly infamous for their uh, necromancy and and for playing kind of with bones and making sure that they could read the fortunes of others. And so uh, they they were kind of tuned in, you know, they were like a modern day Sedona, Arizona, you know, you could go and find yourself a vortex and talk to somebody uh, from the t- tribe of Naphtali about what it meant. Uh, the next group that we have are the sons of Zilpha. Now remember that Zilpha Um, was Leah's handmaid. And so Jacob was, you know, hoping that he'd have all these children. He wanted to have them by Rachel and he just jumps ahead of God. And so he ends up basically with four wives at the end of all of this. And so Leah's maid is now going to, and we're going to talk about a couple of, a couple of her sons. So Gad, a troop shall be upon him and they shall trample him and he shall triumph at last and the bread which will come from asher will be rich and he shall yield royal uh, dainties which means actually delicacies if you want to look at it that way and so you have gad and asher and so you have in gad you have a very warlike group of people Um, these two particular tribes uh, dwelled on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee because what we would call modern-day Jordan or the Golan Heights, um, that area to this day is still relatively uh, sparse as far as having uh, any type of trees or those types of things. So there wasn't a whole lot there, and whatever they got, they worked very hard for. And so they became quite warlike, and, and they were kind of the defender of the of the northern uh, kingdom, which was the kingdom of Israel and so uh, that name Gad actually just simply means a troop so it means a troop a troop is upon us and so uh, it would be Gad that would uh, come to everyone else's rescue basically Uh, it can also mean good fortune by the way and so because of their location enemies would pretty easily invade and so they were constantly being tested and when they were tested, they were found faithful. And so they, they became kind of like the northern border defenders. So when the Assyrians came, uh, they were quick to jump in and, and to fight that fight. And uh, Moses will actually equate them, uh, equate them to a brave lion when we get to the book of Deuteronomy. And he's describing how all these tribes worked out um, in, in, in their way that they interacted with one another. We'll find out that they were quite, quite brave. The other son, Asher means actually happy or blessed is another way to look at it and since the tribe of Asher we'll find out in the book of Judges wasn't able to drive out the inhabitants of their territory when they came into the land during the conquest they kind of settled down and and said well if we can't kick them out we'll just learn to live with them and so Asher kind of settled in to just learning to get along with everybody and it didn't matter what anybody else did. We're just gonna sit here and be, you know, happy farmers. And they were kind of like, if you wanna look at it in that sense, they were almost like Hebrew Mennonites. You know, they just, we're just gonna, you do your thing, we'll do ours, we'll raise food. Don't bother us, we won't bother you kind of guys. And so Asher settles in and uh, they have the fertile plains that are down not too far from the Sea of Galilee. And when you look at the land of Israel, Um, you have to kind of divide it up into the sections that scripture tells us about, because a vast portion of Israel is actually, for all intents and purposes, uninhabitable. The lower Jordan Valley is nothing but the Negev Desert, basically, as as you descend about halfway down the Jordan River Valley, the river itself is there, but there is literally nothing, and if it weren't for modern day farming practices, there would still be nothing in that area of the world, though today it's quite prosperous because of the fact that there is water and the soil is fairly rich. But at that day and time, uh, there was nothing there. And so this particular tribe was pretty good at farming several things which were very important back then. Olives was number one and dates was number two. And those two things uh, grow in this particular region. On the eastern slopes, once you get out of the bottom of the valley, Uh, olive groves inhabit all of basically every single hillside down along the edge of the Jordan Valley uh, has olive groves on it and when you get down in the valley especially in the southern end that's where a vast majority of the very best dates in all of the world grow and so Asher happy blessed and they would have been extremely wealthy from those two crops and so they would have done very well for themselves in fact if you raise Prime olives and prime dates. Today, you would still be wealthy in that region of the world, and so their food was rich. And it, it basically the word that's used there, means a delicacy fit for a king. And of course, the dates were the king's fruit. And in fact, it was always the first of those fruits that went to the king. So if there was a date field, a date farm, which is palm trees, those dates would normally be consecrated to a certain part of the rulership, and they would get the first of those dates. And so it seems that Asher uh, was the one that uh, took care of those. Verse 22, we move on to the sons of Rachel. And Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over a wall. So you can see uh, that Joseph himself would be uh, very, very prominent uh, in blessing the nations. It would be through his lineage that we're going to see some of these Uh, the prophetic blessings pronounced. And so his branches have run over the wall as archers uh, have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him. Uh, But his bow remained in his strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. And so we talk about God when we specifically speak of the Hebrew God, the Hebrew God Yahweh is known as the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob amen and so when you you speak of mighty God El Shaddai the hero God that's actually what El Shaddai means it means the God who is hero the God the God who is like he's the end all when you talk about that's associated with Jacob in other words in Jacob you would see this mightiness of God's character Um, from there there is the shepherd the stone of Israel and so, by God of your Father, who, by the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, blessings of the Father, and have excelled at the blessings of my ancestor, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, for they shall be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. And Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. And in the morning he shall devour the prey. And at night he shall divide the spoil. And so first, uh, this son of Rachel, Joseph. And and is here and is only here. Remember that we kind of talked about those headings that are in your Bibles. Um, how sometimes they're not inspired and this whole chapter is supposed to be this blessing. When it's really just Joseph that has this word associated with him. And Joseph's compared to this fruitful vine, vine, a bough or a tree limb that's going to draw up water from a spring, just exactly as Psalm 1 says, it's going to be growing over the wall. It's going to be abundant. And it would be in Joseph um, that that we would see that fruitfulness. And the fruitful actually, I think, points to his son Ephraim, uh, which we saw back in chapter 41, who's the the founder of the family that grew to expand its territory, and we see that in Joshua 17. But it is Joseph that really is responsible for all of the children of Israel even surviving, amen? That's kind of the story that we've seen. It it is this one who is cast out, this one who is cast off, this one who is hated by the rest of the family, this one who is abused, this one who's sold into slavery. It, It is through Joseph that we actually find the blessing, uh, if you will, uh, of, of that is going to come through what was promised to Abraham, because Abraham was promised several things. He was promised a land, uh, he was promised that he would be fruitful and produce an awful lot of children, and he was promised that through him the entire of the entirety of the earth would be blessed. And of course, uh, it is Joseph that brings that to fruition here in in this, this particular part uh, of Scripture. And so uh, as we see Joseph shooting these arrows and we see Joseph um, and his brothers unable to speak in a civil manner, they, they're lying about him, Potiphar's wife lies about him, Joseph does not shoot back. Joseph is a guy that maintains his character. Joseph is a man who does not give in when temptation comes. Joseph is a man about whom you could say, uh, he he is righteous in that sense and so it, we really kind of see how joseph alone ultimately is going to be used to kind of maintain the integrity of all of the children of israel he's kind of the one guy that you can look at and you really can't find anything bad to say about him and so in this particular passage of scripture we find the lord uses these special names three of them and first Uh, this mighty god who cared for everything that jacob had need of and so now we can look back on what we know about about joseph uh, and what we know about jacob and what we know came through uh, joseph's faithfulness in egypt that benefited jacob his father who's still back in the land of canaan Uh, we can actually see this mighty God, Jehovah, have absolutely everything under control when it looks like everything is completely out of control. Helping him with all this incredibly difficult work, uh, delivering him out of danger. Uh, We we can see that it was God that kind of pushed Joseph along, that actually is going to ultimately be a blessing for Jacob, his father. Uh, And so we can see mighty God through the life of, Uh, of joseph and it ends up being the benefit to jacob and through jacob all of the rest of the sons the picture is this we we never know what god's doing uh in in a in a sense of precision um, in our lives we can have sometimes a general sense sometimes we may have a little greater than the general sense but god is always mighty god And whether we see it or not, in the individual circumstances that we're going through in the moment, when God is at work, it's mighty God who is at work. It's not God with a little g, it's not a tiny God, it's mighty God that's at work. And so in those things that he allows in our lives, that's mighty God that's still at work. In those things that he foreordains in our lives, that is mighty God that's still at work. And when it seems like things aren't going well, that's still mighty God. For the child of God, it is always mighty God that's at work. And so we need to remember that when we think about the, the story of this particular family because it looks kind of like mighty God took some time off, amen? You know, you can kind of look back on the children of Israel and go, man, where was God when all that stuff was happening? Where was that when that abuse was going on? And this is the way it equates to your life. There's probably not a person in here who hasn't gone through things in their life where you might be tempted to say, I think mighty God was asleep in my life at that time. You know, maybe some horrific thing that happened to you as a child. Maybe something where you're involved in a situation and someone else is going through something and you're going, man, this is just so unfair. And I think it's beautiful that our attention is drawn to Joseph in the sense that it was mighty God that was working in Joseph's life because it doesn't look like it from the outside. In fact, it it looks like maybe he's not only not mighty God, he might not even be God at all because of what he's allowed. I mean, who's going to allow? I mean, you think of God himself, And you think of what happens in Joseph's life and it's pretty hard to come to a conclusion. Yeah, you know what? I'm sure glad that God sold him into slavery because you have to look at God's sovereign actions and come to a couple of conclusions. There's no other logical way for us to process this in our minds. God either ordains something or he allows it to happen. And in either case, he knows about it before it happens, amen? And so even the bad things, even the tough things, the difficult things. Behind all those things in your life, there is still at work a blessing, mighty God. And so Jacob then refers back in chapter 48 that that blessing, mighty God, is also a God who shepherds. And this carries a little different connotation. And of course, all of these things point towards Jesus. Amen? Because Jesus is mighty in that he defeated death he defeated sin he defeated the grave and he's also the good shepherd and so Jacob refers to the Lord as the God who shepherded me or looked after me so all this time that we see in the life of Joseph this favored son this one whom Jacob gave him the coat and yes he was not wise with it, he kind of flaunted it a little bit. You know, he he has these dreams and he tells his brothers that, you know, one day you're all gonna bow down to me. Even in the midst of that, God was still shepherding the children of Israel. He was still moving on their behalf. He was still pushing them along the direction they were supposed to go. And while it may have seemed like he was neither mighty God nor was he the good shepherd, When we look in hindsight, we find out God had it under control the whole time. God hadn't abandoned them, and God was still being a good shepherd to them. And so this concept that Jesus would ultimately, in John chapter 10, the reason Jesus, because we know that there is God, and God is in three persons. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The second person of the Godhead, God the Son is also the good shepherd of John chapter 10. He's also the door of the sheep. And so when we look at who Jesus is, we recognize that what Jacob is saying here is going to be true all the way through the life of Jesus. That God is still the good shepherd. God still knows where all of his sheep are, God knew where Joseph was in the bottom of that well. God knew where Joseph was when he was on the camel caravan. God knew where he was when he was in the household of Potiphar. God knew where Joseph was and what he was doing, and he was looking after him. Even when Pharaoh himself could have done whatever he wanted, Pharaoh puts him in jail, and the good shepherd still has Joseph in view and is still being good to him. Now, at the moment, I'm pretty sure Joseph was thinking, man, this is just not okay. But it doesn't change the character and the nature of the good shepherd. And, of course, as Jesus comes on the scene, we just see him pick this up and and actually run it across the goal line, so to speak. Because he says of himself, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So it's one thing for God to be mighty, and to have everything under control. It's another thing for God to care about his sheep and push us along, but how about a good shepherd that's being referred to here by Jacob that would ultimately culminate in Jesus, the one who would be such a good shepherd that he would actually lay down his life for the sheep? That's why these names are so important because they will be tracked all the way through to the actual time of Jesus and in fact they'll be directly associated with what jesus says when he says i am the good shepherd when he uses yahweh and combines it with the fact that he's the good shepherd he's going all the way back to joseph he's going all the way back to jacob he's saying the same god that was mighty in Jacob's life, the same God that was mighty in Joseph's life, the same God that was a good shepherd in Jacob's life, and the same God that was a good shepherd in Joseph's life, that same God is still mighty, and he's still the good shepherd. And for us, we have to keep an eye on these things. Because when we become overwhelmed with our circumstance, we go through tough things, and those things don't make sense to us we're tempted to believe somehow that God is no longer who he says he is. And so we, we man, it's like, well, Lord, I don't know if you're mighty anymore, all because we're going through something, or I don't know if you love me and you're shepherding my life anymore because I'm going through this experience. And then finally, he says he's going to be the rock or he's going to be the stone, and it's just pointing again towards ultimately Jesus But there are certain things that you can go back and you can look at them years later. When you travel to Israel, one of the amazing things, especially when you go to the Canaanite city of Dan and you you walk around this corner and you look at this archway and here's this, this gateway made out of mud bricks that was there at the time of Abraham. And you realize that those rocks have outlived every last one of the people's that lived in that city up until this time. So for thousands of years, times have changed. Peoples have changed. But the rock doesn't change. The rock is what it is. And of course, this would also point forward to Jesus. It's a familiar theme that we have about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we read Deuteronomy or First or Second Samuel. And here ultimately it culminates with Jesus himself remarking about he's going to be the, the chief cornerstone. The one that is rejected. It's the one that David in the Psalms would write about there in Psalm 85. Come and sing to us. O Lord, shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. The reason that they're saying that is that's what was promised to Jacob. That's what was promised to abraham that's what was promised to isaac that was the promise that god would not change that he is the same yesterday today and forever and so these three things that he is he was with abraham he was with jacob even through all of jacob's mess and think about jacob's life as we've now seen his entire lifetime go before us in the last several chapters If there's anything you can say about Jacob is Jacob wasn't perfect, amen? I mean, Jacob had some spots where it's just like, man, Lord, you chose him? You're going to work through that guy? You're going to have him bring forth the children of Israel? That's their heritage? That's it? And then you think about it and go, wow, that gives me great hope for myself. Right? Right? Because if God is going to be mighty in the life of somebody like Jacob, whose name means heel catcher, who ultimately will have his name changed into Israel, governed by God, if he was El Shaddai to Jacob, why would he not be El Shaddai to you? If he's a good shepherd to a guy like Jacob, or to a man like his son Joseph, who's you know sitting here in Pharaoh's court, if he's going to be the rock, if he's going to be the stone, if he's going to be the immovable object... In this world, to those guys, that's his actual character. And he is still those three things today. He's still your mighty God. He is still your good shepherd and mine. And he is still my rock on which I stand and our rock on which we stand. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the children of Israel were getting this firsthand from God. That's why when you read what the Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, when you you take a look, for instance, at Ephesians chapter 2, and that's why it says, having built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, going all the way back to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, jesus himself it says paul says jesus christ himself is the chief cornerstone he's the chief cornerstone he's also the mighty god if he's the mighty god he's also the good shepherd if he is the good shepherd he is also jehovah jireh our provider if he is jehovah jireh he's also jehovah Rapha, our healer He, he can't be one of these things without being all of these things And so God's giving us a picture that these blessings that are going to come to the earth are going to come through the lineage of this family because they are going to be the ones that will be the progenitor, if you will, of Jesus. And so when Jesus comes, he's going to bear all of these names because he's the promised one. So when I think of a stone, I think of stability and strength and security. I think of it being immovable. When I think of, of might or power, I think of nothing can overcome it. When I think of a shepherd, I think, man, no matter what comes my way, that shepherd's got me. He's gonna take care of me. And so it will be for all of the things that we learn about the character of Messiah. And so here we kind of get the foundation for all of that. And as God blessed Abraham richly, As Abraham shared his wealth with Isaac, who in turn gave it to Jacob. Jacob would be the one who would then foster all of those things that were promised. And and as, as imperfectly as he did it, he would still transfer all of these things over to these 12 sons. And these 12 sons would be the one through whom the rest of these things would actually happen. And, of course, there's one son left. He's found there in verse 27, and that is Benjamin. And remember what that name means. It means son of my right hand. It it means the one through whom all of these things would be transmitted because the son at the right hand would be the one who would get the blessing. And so the Benjamites, if you will, of course, are going to be the one through whom Jesus ultimately uh, would come. And so when you look at these men and you look at what they did, the nation, though divided after Solomon's death, the tribe of Benjamin remained faithful to the Davidic line of Judah. And as they stay together, you have all these incredible men that come out of the, the lineage of, of Benjamin. And of course, it's some guys that we're not too fond of. Saul was a Benjamite, Amen. So here, the great king Saul. Oh, we want a king like everybody else has got. So God allows them to select Saul. Uh, They were brave. Moses' words here about Benjamin really don't say anything about his behavior, uh, but ultimately uh, from him would be the almighty, uh, the all-sufficient one, and and together they would form the southern uh, kingdom of Judah. And then you see kind of the, the final blessing here Uh, verse 28 through 33, and these are all of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. And he blessed each one according to his own blessing. And he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered together with my people and bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a position, a possession for a burial place. And there he buried, there is buried Abraham, his, Sarah his wife, Isaac, Rebecca his wife, and there I buried Leah. So this is, this is a sacred place to the children of Israel. And when you... Travel today, unfortunately, this particular place, it actually sits between um, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim outside of modern-day Nablus. Um, but there is, the, is supposedly the burial place, the place of Rachel, which means it's also the burial place uh, of the rest of this part of the patriarchal family. So you have Abraham, uh, Rachel, Leah, uh, and Isaac all buried in this same burial cave that was purchased by Abraham. But it says there, the field and the cave that is there, uh, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered together with his people. And so time has finally now come to see the end of Jacob, the the final of the, the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we have the children, what we call the children of Israel or the 12 tribes positioned, the ones that will carry us all the way uh, finally to to what we call uh, the, the final, the battle, if you will, the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon and God will defend them and we have these 12,000 out of each tri- each of the 12 tribes. It is those 12 sons that are now kind of put in place and readied and of course as we go through which we just did in VBS the book of Exodus and their time fleeing out of the slavery that they were in in Egypt the bondage under the Pharaoh and across into the wilderness and their 40 years of wandering uh, will come to the time where they stand at Kadesh Barnea. And they will look into the promised land and it will be there that Moses will not be allowed to enter in because he misrepresents, it, misrepresents the Lord. But the children of Israel will go in because God said so. And it didn't look like it was possible. In fact, as the spies go in, the spies are like, man, we're not going in. There's giants in the land. Good Joshua comes along and says, "Now, Joshua and Caleb and ultimately, when they parcel out all of the, the land of, of Israel, I, I love how it ends with Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb's like, man, I'm only 85 years old. Give me somebody to fight. <laughs> Those 12 tribes, the ones that go through all kinds of drama, the ones who have had a history of, you know, not doing things that exactly the way they ought to be done and God still being gracious and kind with them. In other words, it's a whole lot like you and I. Our lives are pictured in these 12 tribes because sometimes we know what we're supposed to be doing. We know where we're supposed to be going, but we don't do what we're supposed to be doing and we don't go where we're supposed to be going. And instead of punishing us, you have an almighty God who absolutely loves us and is shepherding us along the way, who moves us from place to place and somehow still gets us into the promised land. So this whole final story is really kind of a picture of God's grace working in our lives, isn't it? Where God is saying, look, I know you're not perfect. I didn't choose you because you were, as God's already said to them, the best and the brightest. I didn't pick you because you were already ready. I didn't pick you because you were already good. I chose you simply because I love you. That's what God does to us. He just loves us. And he loves us so much that he works with our weaknesses and he works with our faults and he works with our mess-ups. He works with our deficiencies, so to speak. And he finally, just as he does here with Jacob, Gets us to our final breath. Gets us to that time when we're going to all pick up our feet and say goodbye to this earth and hello to heaven. Amen? Jacob's long life was finally over. And you can almost picture Jacob sitting on the edge of his bed going, man, I'm sure glad this is done. (laughs) Uh, Looking at his kids going, you know what, I love you, but it's time for you to take over. It, it's time for you to continue the journey it's time for you to pick up the ball and keep running it, it is time as he you know is, is not going to get into the the promised land himself but his kids are he's going to he's going to be buried there he's not going to be alive when it actually is 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 finally able to be inhabited by the children of Israel they're just kind of sojourners still And they're going to spend this time in in Egypt of 400 years and we're going to see as they're delivered in the book of Exodus that that ultimately God had it all planned out before it ever happened. Uh, And as they continued doing uh, what was was their part, God was surely going to do his. And so with only his staff, he'd crossed over the River Jordan many years before and now with the staff with him, as Hebrews 11 says, he crossed over to the other side, the other side being heaven, amen? And that's what God really has for us. I think he wants us to remember that our history is, is the history of him being our mighty God. Our history is the history of him being the good shepherd. Our history is the history of him being a rock that can't be moved. He, he's worthy of just standing on, and we don't have to sweat it. Yeah, I was meeting with the junior high and the high school today, and you know, watching Jimmy and Brandon just kind of you know handle the the meeting and just talking about what's going on. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I'm a lot closer to the end than I am the beginning. And one day I'm going to have to say to to my sons, you know, it, it's it's time. You know, I'm packing up. I'm packing up. I'm heading home. Uh, it's yours, guys. And I think this is important for us. If you're here tonight and you have children, are you preparing your children for the day when you're going to pass the rod along? When you're going to say, okay, it's yours now. Uh, My time is done. I'm finished. I've run my part of the race. It's now time for you to run your part of the race. And are you going to make sure that they know that the mighty God that sustained you will sustain them? And that the good shepherd that got you through every single trial and difficulty that led you all along life's journey is going to be with them as well. And that ultimately, no matter what happens, God is still going to be the rock. Jesus will be the rock. And no matter how much the waves beat against the shore and no matter how stiff the breeze begins to blow, that they will not be on sinking sand and that when you take your last breath, you can take your last breath with confidence. And I pray that we think on those things occasionally. Not in a morbid sense of, oh, I'm done and you know, i got to get out of this place kind of thing. But more in the sense of really trusting God. Saying, God, you have been good. You have been faithful. You have given me everything that I have need of. There's not one moment of my life when I can't look back on it and say, you know what, God had it under control. As much as I've been through things and you've been through things where you know we could say that just wasn't the way I would have mapped it out, but even though it wasn't the way you would have mapped it out, God still made it into something that we can look back and go, hmm, he used that. That shaped part of my character. That moved me along life's journey. How many of you have been moved by negative things in your life to a place that you actually needed to be? So, just getting out of negative circumstances isn't always beneficial. And I'm pretty sure the God who's the mighty God knows exactly how many of each of those things we're supposed to have. The one who is the good shepherd knows exactly how much of that stuff you can handle. Sometimes it seems like we're getting to the end of of what we can handle, but the Bible clearly says he will never allow us to be tested beyond what we are able to bear, and in it, there is a way of escape, and we can trust him with that, and I'm sure Jacob got to those places in his life where he's looking at his kids and he's going, man, these kids! I can't believe they're doing this! Can you imagine when he finally found out what they actually did to Joseph, how he must have felt? It's like, there's only gonna be one son left. It's like, what you put for 20 plus years, you put me through that? But God was so faithful that even in the knowledge of that, God was able to use that and make this man who now sits on his deathbed Just actually rejoice that he's going home. It's like it's my—I'm good. I'm ready to go. May we all be like that. May we all look back on who God is and what He's allowed in our lives, and look towards that time that is—that is our future, where we're going to step into His presence and go. I've run the race. I finished the fight. I, I, I fought the good fight. And I'm ready to go home to be with the Lord because I know God's got her under control. Amen? Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll pray. I'm gonna have some of the pastors come up and maybe you got something where you feel like maybe the rock moved or the shepherd doesn't care. Perhaps you need the mighty God to step in and intercede. We'll have some pastors available, some prayer partners to pray with you. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I just want to publicly thank you for being my mighty God. Lord, my good shepherd. Lord, you have never failed. You've always been the rock. And I've been able to stand on you all of my days. Since the first day that I came to know you. Not once have you ever been unworthy of that trust, of that reliance. And God, I just pray, if there's someone here tonight that's just struggling, maybe they think that somehow you're not sufficient, Lord, would you show them your sufficiency? Would you take that deep pain, perhaps that they're going through, something in their life that hurts in a way that they can't even articulate? God, I pray that they would turn that over to mighty God, to the good shepherd, to the one who was and is and still is to come, Lord, the one that is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who's not just a lamb that is slain, but is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so, Lord, we just give you our lives and ask that you would help us to just be steadfast and immovable, always abounding, in the labor that we have in you because it's not in vain when it's in you. Lord, it may have looked like that to Joseph. It may have looked like that to Jacob. Maybe even these these brothers, maybe it looked like it wasn't going to work out. But Lord, all things, all things, everything works together to the good who those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And so Lord, we just declare uh, that we are your people and we know you've called us And so, Lord, we we look to you to be our strength. We look to you to be our shepherd. We look to you to be our rock. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.